Hi, I'm Paul Camillos. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin for Series 4 of Shooting the Breeze. We cover women's hoops and women in hoops. We talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. During this series we'll be covering the FIBA Women's World Cup where the 12 best teams of the planet are coming to Sydney. And of course, we'll be covering Australia's longest running women's professional sporting league, the WNBL, in its 43rd season. Hit that subscribe button, like and review so we can get more Hoops content to you. Congratulations to both teams in the grand final. It's been a wonderful season to get there. And, you know, shout out to, to not only the players, but the coaches who put in such hard work, the physios, the, the, the support staff that keep them on the court. They should all be recognized for their great work of getting their teams to the grand final. And, and best of luck to everybody. It's WNBL Grand Final Eve, and joining us is expert commentator Laurie Chiswick. In this episode, we take stock of an impressive semi-final series, preview the Grand Final series, and cover some key observations from a hugely successful WNBL 23. The consistent top two teams in the back half of the season prevailed for an epic Grand Final showdown this Saturday. Shannon Seabom's Townsville Fire are the minor premiers off the back of a 14-game winning streak and will play the best of a three-game series against Cheryl Chambers' Southside Flyers. The Flyers this week got over the line with a one-point win after a truly epic contest against fierce rivals and reigning champs, the Melbourne Boomers. Covering the regular season, semis, and ready for Game 1 of the Grand Finals, Laurie puts her experienced coach's hat on and gives us her views on what will be an exciting end to the WNBL season. So whether you're at the games or watching live from all over the world, enjoy the best Aussie women's hoops in town. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Today, it's a very special episode. Joining me, as always, my co-host Jacinta Gavin and our very special guest, Laurie Chiswick. Laurie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, guys. Really glad to be here, especially can't imagine being anywhere else talking hoops on the eve of the finals. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be an amazing series, I think, especially after the uh, that game three between Southside and the Boomers last night. Oh, well, that just whets your appetite for what's possibly to come because that was just a game for the centuries. That was unbelievable. It was hard to pick and, and really you couldn't pick it right down to the last play. Yeah, I, I mean, it was probably the ideal that the game finished on one point. Oh, I was hoping overtime, to be honest. I think it deserved overtime that game. But, yes, yeah, so I agree. And as much as that is a heartbreak for the Boomers, you know, hopefully someday they can look back and watch that game and see what a brilliant game it actually was. Yeah, it was just amazing. Now, I'm going to throw this out there before we really get into this. It was such a shame that the game happened to be the same date and the same time as game five of the NBL final. Well, it was. I mean, it was really unfortunate for the fans and the viewers, but 
to be honest, there's, you know, nothing you can do to predict that that would have happened, that, that the men's series would go to game five, that this one would go to game three, you know, and it's all to do with timing and broadcasting. And, and you can't, unfortunately, when, when they did realize it was a clash, it's really difficult to then make those changes because tickets have been sold. They've been advertised. The, you know, the, the broadcast has got set things. So really unfortunate, but what can you do? Yeah. I'm just wondering how many people were sitting at one game or the other watching the other game on their phones. Well, you know, it's interesting because I I made that comment about, oh, it's so unfortunate. And, And there was a bit of discussion saying that the crowds are quite different, that it wouldn't be to the same audience. But I, I tend to disagree with that. I think there's a lot of just basketball enthusiasts that would have liked to have seen both games, um, especially when it's at finals time for both of the uh, leagues. Yeah, I was sitting, uh, look, I'll admit that I was at the Kings game and I was watching it on my, I was watching the Flyers Boomers game on my phone, uh, especially the live stats. And I was just really surprised by the number of lead changes, especially even in the last minute and a half. I think there were like four lead changes. Oh, well, we talked about that all night, the momentum shifts throughout that game. You know, you feel like somebody's south side's just got a bit of ascendancy and then all of a sudden, you know, the boomers would come back and get a couple of threes in a row and all of a sudden they're up and now the, the Flyers are playing catch-up basketball. There was never a big margin in the whole throughout the whole game. I think, you know, I'm going to say five or six points was the biggest margin, but you're right, Jacinta, it flip-flopped the whole game. It really, I think that game more than any other game this season showed the strength of the clubs. When you've got clubs that are relatively evenly matched, the ability for those teams to play hard and kind of keep each other within reach was really interesting, particularly given the history that they've had earlier through the season between those two teams. Well, you know, I was thinking about that today. In fact, I got up and, and actually rewatched the whole game because it was, I just wanted to see it again and, and it was so exciting. But um, you have to say that, you know, lots of times the word rivalry is, is tossed around between different teams, but this is a genuine rivalry. And it was great. The crowd was really loud. And I think it was, you know, maybe not 50-50, but close. There was a lot of Boomers fans there. And and you're right to um, be able to make adjustments, even from game one to game two to three. I mean, what vastly different games, game one and two. And what I was so impressed with in game three was the ability for the athletes to maintain their composure and not get caught up in the, you know, the referees calls, the momentum swings, all those sorts of things was really impressive because it was a pressure packed environment there. And the rivalries as well, like teams aside and uh, crosstown rivalries aside, there were also the individual rival, not so much rivalries, but matchups, I suppose. Um, the likes of Matty Rocci and Christy Wallace is such interesting and intense matchup, not just because they're such similar players, but I think sometimes these matchups have weight when they go into Opal's camps too, both competing for the same spots. 
Well, yes. I mean, you know, when when they've got the Flyers uniform on and the Boomers uniform, there is no love loss, and they go at it hard. And 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 I think ultimately they absolutely respect each other, but they are going out to try and defeat that, uh, you know, their opponent and their direct matchup. 100%. So when you get to Opal's camp, it's just something you have to, you know, swallow your pride, swallow whatever, and just get on with it and, and be teammates. But, you know, the matchup with Rachi and Wallace was just so fun to watch because they're both competitors. They're quite different in their style and the method and their, you know, way they go about their game. Both have their, um, certainly their strengths, both have their weaknesses as well, but it was, I thought they did a great job of, like I said, keeping in check their emotions, which for both of them sort of got out of hand in game one and two. Moving on to, you know, our previewing the grand final as we kind of move on from this, because some of these conversations are going to lead on into what we, what's going to go on in the, the grand final series. First of all, do we know of any injuries that are out there that could roll into game one? Well, nothing I've heard directly. Obviously, um, Thornton has her ankle and, you know, it would have taken a hard push last night and then to try and recover and get on a long flight today isn't ideal for an injury like that. But, you know, I would think she'll be fine. Interestingly, and I haven't heard anything or heard any whispers, but I noted on um, the Perth-Townsville game that uh, uh, Steph Reed played 22 minutes in that game. She didn't play at all in the fourth quarter, uh, and she averages 31 minutes. Now, I don't know whether that was any injury or, I mean, Shyla did come on and play really well, so it was a case of nothing to do with Reed, but that Shyla Heal played so well in that fourth quarter and, and, you know, a sub wasn't necessary. Sometimes they play together. She says she's not injured, so, you know, I have to believe that. But um, I, I just thought that was interesting during the end of that game to see, but I, I'm sure she'll be fine. Yeah, because during the telecast, Kayla Thornton seemed to be, towards the end of the game, seemed to be kind of moving around a bit gingerly on that ankle. Oh, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I know there was one shot she took, a three-point shot she took in the second half, and it didn't look like she could really gather herself and, and, and you know, use her, her legs to get into the shot. It was well short. But I tell you what, it wasn't that short when she made that last basket, that last go-ahead basket to win the game. <laughs> that felt pretty good. The ankle was feeling good then. <laughs> that it was. Okay, so, I mean, this is going to be a really tough series, this grand final series. What do you think are the key matchups we're going to need to look at between Townsville and Southside? Well, uh, you know, I was thinking about that because I'm I'm actually calling game one of the grand final, which I'm really excited about. So, of course, immediately I, you know, went into, well, okay, who, who would you look at the matchups? They match up really well together, both teams. I think Townsville, to be honest, would be happy that Southside are, um, they're playing Southside because I think they match up really well with them. And plus, of course, they've had a great record against them across the season. But again, you look at the guards. So you've got Rachi and Reed, 
and then add into that heel and Conti. So, you know, that, that mix of players is certainly, um, you, you look at those matchups and then it's, it's really, um, right across the board. So you've got, uh, I think Cole will match up with Nicholson. And I thought Cole has been doing a great job defensively. And, and, um, you know, I thought for a while there, the first half, she did a brilliant job on Tiff Mitchell. And then you've got Blitzaws and Samuelson. Sort of similar players in that they both can shoot the three. We know Samuelson is a you know expert three-point shooter, but Blitzos has I think has had a fantastic final series so far, and they both can get to the rack. Blitzos is probably a bit more explosive, and then the bigs. I'm not quite sure how that will match up. Whether they'll put the you know Hawkins and Thornton together, and then Roof and uh, Bishop, or the other way around. That that I'm not really sure about. But all in all, it's a pretty even matchup. Jacinta, what what are you looking at? Yeah, I think they're really great matchups. Um, I my instinctively, I would think Thornton and Hawkins would be a matchup, but I think in a sense of perhaps protecting Thornton a little bit with the ankle, maybe uh, Abby and Carly Ernst will rotate onto Hawkins a little bit more, um, so Kayla can probably focus her energy a little bit more on being more than an offensive threat for the Flyers. Considering now that LJ is also out, I think Thornton under the basket has a bigger job to do. But I feel what's interesting, though, coming into this series, please correct me if I'm wrong because I think I've gotten it wrong in the last couple of days, but the Townsville Fire beat the Flyers this season like all three games. Am I right? I know they've beaten them twice. I'd I'd have to look at my head-to-head notes, which I don't have here, but I know they've beaten them twice. Yes, but at least, well, at least two yeah. out of the three. Yeah, they, de- they yeah. definitely won the head-to-head series, and that's why yeah. they would feel pretty comfortable, um, you know, going into this game against them. Yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, having that mental edge, because if it was the other way around where Boomers went through, Boomers was the one team that had the head-to-head against Townsville. I think maybe yeah. the only team that had the head-to-head against Townsville. Yeah, and had some really close, close games with them. So, you know, I think Townsville would have been watching that game yesterday and, you know, being very happy with how Maddie Rochi, um, you know, that last minute of the game had three things happened for her that, that really changed that the outcome. And, and so I'm sure they would be very happy with that. Do we think, I mean, looking, looking at the statistics, just purely looking at the numbers, it looks like, you know, Townsville have an edge over Southside. But we could have said the same for the, the, the series between Southside and the Boomers. Southside seemed to be able to pull something magical out every so often that you just can't capture in the stats. What do you guys think that is? Well, for South, I mean, you know, I you look at them, and, and Townsville is is a much more clinical, disciplined type team. They will run through their offense right to the last, you know, however long, and, and get a good shot. They're very patient. They like to slow the ball down, and I think Southside that'll that'll be something as Perth had to contend with because they like to play more of an up-tempo type game. But I tell you what, yesterday I was so, in, or in game three, I was so impressed with the way Southside 
got the ball through hands, were quite patient in their execution um, before they got a, a, a good shot up. Because in game two, they sort of, you know, rushed their shots. And I think that was a product of scoreboard pressure. So to your question, Paul, I think that Southside, they've just got some wonderful talent out there. And if everybody can work to get each other open and not just rely on okay, I've got the ball. Yeah, pretty good. I think I can go one-on-one here and beat my player. But instead, just have that extra mindset of I'm going to go and pass it, set a good screen, and that player's going to be even more open. I think if – and that's what, to me, they showed last night much more of than they did in game two. And I think that that could hold them in good stead against Townsville. I think with Southside, early on in the season, we knew that they were like on paper a scoring powerhouse compared to most teams, like anyone, any given day, anyone on that roster can have 20 points. But I think what was their downfall early in the season was that they were being a little bit too hesitant of who was going to take the shots. Like they almost looked like they were being too polite with each other of like, no, you can have a turn. Oh, no, you have a turn. And in the end, no one was shooting. So hopefully that will be put aside where they'll just kind of roll with it with whoever is hot on the night or whoever is getting open the most on the night that's what they'll kind of roll with and just be a little bit more, I guess, fluid and spontaneous with that. Um, Like you said, we've seen Beck Cole being uh, a lot more efficient in this final series compared to the rest of her season. And if it's her time to kind of step up again and be the scorer on the day, then so be it. And other players can be effective in other areas. But I'm expecting, we know that Townsville like to play in the half court. And I wonder if Southside are going to try and make that even more difficult by putting pressure in the front court, making uh, Townsville have even more like limited time once they get the ball over halfway to execute those plays. Well, we know if any team can get up and in and play full court defense, it's Rochi and Conti. Having said that, if there's any guards that, you know, can beat that, it's Steph Reed and her handles and, and the way she approaches the game too. So that in itself is fascinating. Like I think Townsville, when I say they play a slower pace game, they still look at pushing the ball and see if they can get something early in transition. But it's just if they don't, that's when they become very disciplined and, you know, execute what, you know, Shannon has put in place. And, and, you know, if the ball ends up with Steph Reed at the end of a shot clock, she's just so crafty at either scoring it herself um, or distributing to an open shooter on the perimeter. So for them to get up and in, yes, they can do that, but it'll be interesting to see how Reed in particular would handle that situation. Now, the other part to the equation is on the sideline, the two coaches. They've both proved themselves over the last few years to be, you know, amongst the best coaches in the WNBL. They have a great read on the game. They have great people skills as well. How much of a factor do you think that's going to have on the outcome? Well, look, I think coaches, I mean, they're. you have to say with a coach that, the majority of their work is done before game day. You get to that stadium and there's, 
you know, yes, you have, you have in your mind, well, what if this happens, this happens, I can do this, this, that that's all in your mind, but the bulk of your work is done beforehand. And so when it comes to game day, yes, I think there is a little bit of, um, well, not a little bit, sometimes there's a lot of strategy or timeout when you call it, but I think that'll be, that'll go both ways. I think both of them are certainly you listen to their timeouts and they're both come across as very calm in their timeouts and and you know Cheryl's very positive whether they're behind or not Shannon I think is is similar I think he can get revved up a little bit at times too as we all do as coaches and and Cheryl I'm sure included but you know at this stage you do have to be positive and you know after game 1 uh, with the Boomers and um, Southside, and I was talking to Coach Chris Lucas, and it's like you know, wow, how do you, how do you go about approaching, you know, training the next day? And you really at this stage, yes, you can point out the errors, but you have to be positive. You have to stay positive because the players have to have to feel like you trust them, you have confidence in them, that they have confidence in each other. And really, at this stage of the season, that's the only thing that you can go in with. But, just, but having said that, they always have plan A, B, C, and D up their sleeve for sure. <laughs> That's, you know, somebody used to ask me, you know, are, is it ner- are you nervous as a coach before a game or more nervous as a player? Way more as a coach because as a player, you'd warm up and you could get the nerves out by running around and that. Whereas a coach, all you're doing is thinking of the, the what ifs and have I got that ready to change? And if that doesn't work, I'll do this. You know, all those things going in your mind when really you can't do much about it. it the players have to go out and execute what your game plan is. And as from like putting your coach's hat on for a second, Laurie, you're right in saying that Shannon's, Shannon's team and particularly this season, this uh, particular Townsville fire group, are very well disciplined in executing their half-court plays. Probably something that I have very rarely seen in a while, just how uh, consistently they execute their plays. Very little error, very well, con- very good at con- uh, executing their plays to get the right people open at the right time. It's, it's really, really outstanding. Yeah. And from a coach's perspective, how do you implement that? Like how do you achieve that level of, of execution like through training because I imagine only part of it would just be repetition and well what would you say is the other part to getting them to that stage well it certainly is a lot about repetition but you know the other thing is it's it's getting your players to buy into the the structures that you're putting to place and that they can see that well if we do this this will be an outcome and if that's taken away this is a counter move and you know, I remember one season and one of my seasons, I had a play that I really liked. I just thought this was a great play. And for whatever reason, the players just didn't buy into it, didn't really like it or whatever. And, you know, I eventually had to go, all right, I don't want to, but this plays out the window because it's not working. And and so you have to, your, your players have to, uh, you know, get that understanding of, yeah, this is a, this is a good play. This is going to, this is going to work. And same thing with defensively, they need to be able to do that as well. You know, understand what you're doing and why you're doing it and how this is going to work. But thinking about this, what do you think, uh, if you had to look at it, what are the things that people really need to look at as danger areas in the game? Well, I think, um, that's a, that's a good question that, that, 
you have to know how to control momentum swings because there's always going to be momentum swings in a game. You, you know, you can't play. Rarely do you have a team that plays the perfect game for 40 minutes. So, you know, you're going to maybe have some uh, sometimes when the shots aren't dropping for you or the other team just goes on a bit of a blitz right away. So you need to know the danger is if you don't sort of have a, a plan on how to counter those momentum moves. So sometimes that means, um, you know, if you're a fast flowing team and it's not working that all you go, okay, you know, we, we just need to slow it down. We need to run some stuff. We need to call these plays where we know exactly where the shots are coming from, where our rebounds then are coming from so that you have that sort of balance. And, and, and that can in fact refocus players as well, because sometimes when things aren't going well, and you're, you're just sort of running a motion type offense where it's just read the defense. Everybody can just not be on the same page. And I think that so that if you, if you have a little bit more structure that can refocus players, because I know I pass the ball, I've got to go screen. I've got to go headhunt a player, uh, uh, you know, to get my teammate open. So, so I think those sort of little things help in preparation. Okay. To me, I think one of the things that's a potential here is the teams themselves, probably Townsville is less open to this, but there are some key players in each team. And if either one of them gets defended really well or they get you know knocked out of their, their regular game rhythm, it can throw the performance of the whole team. If you think about that, which are the two players from each team that, that both of you think, if they're really you know, pressed hard and thrown off their rhythm, would have the biggest impact? Hmm. That's an interesting one. I mean, two players from each team. Uh, well, I think we could see the absence of Thornton, what that did to the Flyers. And there's no doubt, you know, she leads them with scoring. She's, uh, you know, right up there in the league's best scoring. And but, but it's her defense. It's her presence on defense. So I think if all of a sudden, you know, she went down, her ankle played up in game one and she only played a couple of minutes and then had to, had to be subbed out. I, I think even though they've got Ernst to come in, Potch can come in and, and Blitzos can go into the four. I still think that would be a big out for them. So she would be my number one for Southside. What, what do you think Jacinta? Yeah, I, th- I think also Thornton as well. Yeah. I think definitely her presence inside. You're right. Um, is probably felt more than um, when, in the days when she might have a quiet scoring day. Yeah, but I think uh, the other player, perhaps from Southside, probably it would probably be Rochi. Yeah, in a sense of organisation, and not yeah. saying that Conti uh, isn't a great point guard that you know play knows that point guard role very well and is able to organise the team into you know when to run and when to play in the half court. But I have noticed, in a, especially in the last few rounds, the times where the wheels started to fall off offensively for the Flyers and Conti was controlling the group, probably when it started to go a little bit wayward, um, she wasn't able to kind of regroup and get the team back and focused on what they were supposed to be doing. And that's when the kind of team was looking to each other and then looking for scoring options and then no one was scoring. So I think... Probably Thornton and Rochi for yeah for the Flyers, uh, and, and that's uh, I agree with that. And then if I look at if I look at Townsville, well, interesting. If it had been before the last game against Perth, I would have said without question Reed. 
I think she's the engine. I think she organizes. I think she comes up with, you know, shots and, and assists when it's needed. But tell you what, when she sat for that whole fourth quarter, I was really impressed with heel. But again, I think up against Rochi, that's a whole different ball game. The one player I would say for Townsville, which is a, it's a bit of an interesting one, but Michaela Roof for me is unbelievably the glue for that team when it comes to just effort things and and getting you know a hand to something and and uh, settling the team and she's just inspirational because and she sets good screens uh, she plays her role so well like she's had a, I think she's had an, a, an amazing season I think she's really crucial to their success for the final so you know yes they've got the big stars in in Hawkins who's been fantastic as well but I really think Roof's a, a one that they need on the court. Yeah, she just has that different type of energy, uh, a little bit, not in a bad way, a little bit of an unorthodox style of play sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like It's like she's reading the game totally different to everyone else and she's able to anticipate some things before yeah. everyone else. She's able to uh, come off the bench, inject some energy, bring up the intensity, especially when there were times where towns we were in a bit of a lull and got into a bit of a rut. At either end, she was able to turn that around. And that's not something you can really, like, coach. That's just something that comes with the player that they're kind of born with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's super helpful to have on a team like that. Certainly, Reed, especially, like you said, going into this matchup against Rochi and Conti, I think in terms of, like, psychologically and having a bit more composure, Reed is definitely... Um, has a bit of an edge over Shyla Hill in that sense at this stage of their careers. Yeah. And I think going into the final series where, as you know, every decision is important, um, I think that's going to be of benefit. But I think sometimes with Townsville, it's a bit of, I, I've noticed a bit of a parallel between obviously they want to try and get Nicholson and, and Samuelson open on the outside, especially Nicholson on a curl cut. So she can either go for a layup or pop up at the elbow. And Samuelson, you know, just from anywhere, because her shooting at the back end of this season has been outstanding. Has yeah. such a high percentage. But I notice sometimes if they go a little bit cold, both of them uh, can have a bit of a, a weight on the rest of the team and they're kind of like, oh, no, things aren't kind of going as expected. So I think sometimes depending on how either those two are, performing particularly on offense can have a impact on the rest of the team as like on their morale. See, I think Samuelson, her three point shooting is amazing. And, but I like now the way she's actually mixing it up a bit and putting the ball, like she's not explosive, but she does get to the rack uh, efficiently and can finish really well. She's got that size and length to be able to do that. And so you know, she's getting harder to defend. You have to close out really long to her because she's she's got such range. But now I like the way she's and, – and, and she moves well off the ball. So, again, she's out in the perimeter. Somebody else puts it to the floor and she slashes to the basket and, and you know, gets herself open that way as well. We talked a bit about Michaela Roof. Towards the back end of this season, for this WNBL season, I think we've all noticed that the physicality of the games has – increased right last night's game there were, it was very physical a lot of people in a lot of early foul trouble as well i think one of the areas that we might want to look at in relation to this final series is the 
the physicality. And we've seen, and I'm, I'm going to go back to Michaela Roof, just towards the back end of the season, she was not backward in taking it to other players. You know, she wasn't willing. She wasn't going to step back if there was going to be physical hard contact. She was there and she would take it. How much do you think that the physicality in this series could end up playing a role in terms of you know people getting themselves into foul trouble, probably earlier than the coaches would want? Well, so it's a good, interesting point that you make because I know when we called the Perth Townsville game. It wasn't nearly as physical as the the Melbourne and Southside game, you know. It just it, it it wasn't the you know the really bumping the cutters and the post players and and it just it wasn't. And so certainly Southside are going to go into it battle hardened, so to speak, after playing the Boomers <laughs> and and expect and be able to handle that physicality because they've had three games of it so far. Townsville, I think it'll take a, a bit of adjusting as to, you know, if Southside go out and play the physicality, which I would expect that they do, it's finals, it's finals time, it's grand final, that that might take a little bit for Townsville just to to get used to um, playing against that. Uh, I mean, it, and as much as a coach, you tell them, you know, it's going to be physical, you've got to be ready for this, we've got to, until you get into the game and it actually happens, it can just just take a little bit of a while to get used to. And, of course, it'll depend how the referees call the game. Jacinta? Yeah, I'm really hoping that they allow a certain level of physicality, like that the tone is going to be set early in the game. Whether, um, like, like Laurie said, just let the teams work it out. One team is going to set the tone of the physicality more than the other. Let them adjust to it without blowing the whistle so many times in the first five minutes because that makes it really, 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 really boring. But then also really difficult for the players to then readjust to what the referees are calling versus what their game plan is, what their defensive styles and rules and stuff are for that particular game. So I just hope that there's a little bit of leeway to set the tone for the physicality of the game and hopefully set the tone for the series so it's, like, not quite consistent. But um, I do think you're right. I think the likes of Thornton and Hawkins uh, historically have gotten in a bit of foul trouble early in some games, so they will have to be a little bit careful because we would really hate for them not to be playing as many minutes as possible um, because of early foul trouble. Just for the sake of the fan, like I want to see them grind it out for the whole 40. I mean, there were games... uh, couple of games in the stretch there where Hawkins was playing like a whole game and uh, you would kind of forget because she didn't look tired at all. That Maybe the first game against Perth where she played nearly the whole game. She and- played yeah. virtually the whole game for both the game one and game two. And uh, Megan asked her after the game, you know, you've played like, oh, are you tired? And she goes, no, I feel like if it was game three, I'd want to play 40 minutes. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I loved that. You know, I loved her. And she did. She didn't look tired at all. And so, you know, that's, but again, it's, a, it's playing against a more physical team is wearing and, you know, can be a bit draining. But I'm like you, Jacinta. I want to, there's times where you just want a, a, a no call. It's just, you know, it's good defense. It's good offense. Let's have a no call and let them keep going. Obviously, you have to call the the obvious ones and, and the ones that impact the game. But, you know, if it doesn't impact, just just let them play. 
Um, and so hopefully that'll, that'll be the case because then it really showcases the player's physical attributes, their mental attributes and their emotional attributes. If you, you know, just let it and, and, and it's refereed and played in that manner. And on top of that, from the fan's point of view, it's a whole lot more interesting to watch if the whistle's not being blown every 30 seconds for for some slight where you kind of look at it and go, you know what, that was way too soft to call. Yeah. And the consistency. We really the other thing that's important is to have consistency across the decision making throughout the series. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because then the players know, you know, they, they can talk about it after game one and saying, well, this is how it was called. This is the way we need to adjust. Um, and you want to be able to come out in game or, you know, even if it's at half time, don't, you know, you don't want to wait a whole number game, but it is then up to the players to adjust as long as that consistency remains in place. Okay. Now I'm curious to hear your opinions on how you think this is, this is going to act as a, an X factor. Townsville crashed the ticketing system while they were doing it. <laughs> right. How much of an advantage, I mean, you know, look, we all know it's tough to play in Townsville at the best of times. How much of a of a bonus is going to be that Townsville crowd in game one? Well, I have to say that oh, look, I think I think all home court, you know, when you have a loud, boisterous crowd, that it plays plays some part. I think these are um, you know, professional elite athletes that have now, at least in this final series, played in front of some good crowds and loud and vocal and, you know, they're used to it. So they will know how to tune it out because there's no doubt when they're up in Townsville and Rachi is guarding Steph Reed or going to try and get through a screen and she, you know, throws her body, the crowd is going to get stuck right into her. And, but I don't think that'll affect her. I don't think, I think they've had enough of that. What it does though. So I'm not sure it's so much it affects the opposition negatively as it as it lifts the home team it can really lift the home team to maybe just get that little extra effort you know somebody goes flying out of court to save the ball and the crowd goes crazy that's that lifts the home team more so than it being a a negative on the visiting team so it can really be your second set of legs when it's been a really really competitive season very competitive final series the travel between Townsville and Melbourne for each game and like with very minimal rest time as well between finals games too, when it comes to the, to the crunch, your home crowd can be your second set of legs. Like that is what's going to carry you over. Just like at the UC Cats presentation, how sixth person of the year was given to the fans. Yeah. How good was that? Yeah. I love that when I heard that. But I think um, I wonder as well, too, if you're the away team, especially like you said, you're Maddie Rochi playing against uh, Steph Reed. Maybe, maybe the home crowd can like keep you a little bit grounded in a sense where I was like, oh, look, if I, if I kind of let my emotions get the better of me, if I'm, you know, throwing myself around a little bit, the crowd's going to react and that may, it may or not affect me and my focus. Maybe it's a good way to keep yourself in check of, okay, look, block that out a little bit more than what I would normally do and just focus on, on my job. 
So I, I agree with you, Jacinta. I think that in theory, the player can have that talk to themselves before the game and whatever. I think when you get in the heat of the battle, yes. that that little conversation goes right out the window. Uh, yeah, it's the first thing to leave your mind, right? Your frontal lobe, your impulse center is just firing and you just will act on impulse. You're like, oh, yeah. wait, what did I tell myself before? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like shopping when you're hungry and you're like, all I need, is bread and then you go down the wrong aisle and like oh impulsively i'm going to buy this yeah. and i'm going to buy this and yeah <laughs> and you go you leave with more than bread yeah no it's uh in theory but the, and that's the i think that's the the beauty of it too is that you see this physicality you see players going hard and diving on the ball and and whatever and that's just that raw passion that everybody's just so desperate to get their team over the line. And that's what's so great about our sport and, you know, the final series. Okay. Now it's time for the, the impossible to answer questions. Oh no. <laughs> this has become okay. like my dreaded. I am, look, based off my history this season, I'm only going to go out as far as saying, it's going to go to three. That's it. I'm not going to call the team. <laughs> well, you'd have, you know, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to go, well, town, well, I know, listen to me. This is, this is like, this is like I'm saying right now, I'm, you know, this, logically this, this, and this, but, you know, it'll just go out the window. But you go logically, Townsville are on a, is it 14 now or 15? I think 14. 14. 14 yeah. game winning streak. They're at home. They only had game two. Uh, Southside had game three. And so, you know, and have had to fly up. So logically you'd go, well, I think Townsville are going to get game one anyway. But having said that, we know that finals can produce anything and the Flyers can just, you know, come up with something as you said, right at the beginning, Paul, sometimes they come up with just something that's special and and throws it out there and the universe everything you know matches up and they get a win like that see i'm a little bit more superstitious when it comes to finals time in any league where the oh and now i'm i'm kind of re don't want to say it either because i don't want to put it out in the universe <laughs> but <laughs> but um you know, the, the season awards are given out before the final series. So we've had MVP, we've had coach of the year, et cetera. And last season, the team with the MVP and – wait, who was MVP last season? It was – Natalie Maley. Yeah, of course, it was Maley. So we saw the MVP not make finals and then we saw the coach of the year not win the chip. And so now our MVP is not in the grand final, but our coach of the year is – and so, I, I mean, by history, <laughs> the Flyers will win. But by logic, I think it will be Townsville in three. Uh, I think it will be similar to the semifinal series between Flyers and Boomers where one team will dominate, you know, the first game. Flyers will probably get a great win the second game and it will go down to the Y in the third. And if we're going to go as far as saying finals MVP, I'm going to say either Hawkins or Reed. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I agree with this. It's with now out in the universe just until. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a, predictions are such a dread because you just it's just so hard to tell and I'm too analytical with these things and this is why I don't coach because I can't make a decision. I'd rather just give people the information like as, as an assistant and go, this is all I have to give you. Done all this <laughs> research. Use what you will of it and then they can make the decision. I just can't. <laughs> nah. Yeah. The, the way this season's gone, all I'm willing to go, is, go as far as, as I said is it's going to go to three games. It's going to go to three. Other than that, you know what? It's, it's just been too close a season to really, you know, feel comfortable calling it. Yeah. And and I do want to before we wrap up, I do want to touch a little bit about this season. First of all, it's been an awesome season. We've had great crowds. We've had you know great games. We had you know that record crowd at John Kane Arena uh, for what was you know yet another one point game. <laughs> yeah, I see this as being really positive for the league. I see it as being a really great step forward for the league. And I think next season is going to be able to build on that and grow even further. What do you guys think about this season and, you know, the crowds and the, the, the engagement with fans? How do you see this for the league going forward? Well, I think it's a real, I, I felt like it was a real positively. I mean, I always think our product's great. I, I really do. I, I think, many, many years we've had a, a great product and, and each year you just find something about it that gets a little bit better. And so I think that again happened this year, you know, with the the, the points that were scored, the, the, you know, the nature of the games and how they were played, the fact that, you know, the team in eighth spot could on any given night beat a top team. So I think that does go strength to strength. I think the crowds were definitely increased and I hope that that continues next year. My question is, were they increased because of, and at least initially, the LJ factor? You know, it was sort of like her farewell tour, and, and she stayed and she signed, and she was so great at doing that. Or is that okay? That that might have been the case, but they loved it so much that they continued to come and, and that they will continue to come next year. You know, the John Kane arena game was just a, you know, that would be great to have something like that again and, and maybe two a year. But again, you, you have to, you know, there was talk of perhaps for Southside, you know, should we, should we try and get game two at John Kane arena? It just wouldn't happen. You know, you have your, it's, that took a lot of planning. It was the LJ factor. You know, it's a week out sort of thing. But again, even the fact that that was even mentioned in a conversation, that's a positive. So I think, yes, there is. And that the challenge as always is to get better in everything you do. So, you know, there was some, definitely some problems with the, the broadcasting at the beginning. And, and I think, even, you know, at the end, there's there's areas to improve. And so you always have to improve, whether that's in the communication, whether that's in the, the media, whether that's, you know, coaches, wh whatever it is, we have to keep improving. But, you know, and, and I feel like we're going in the right direction. I just want it to go faster than it's going. I, I want us to take big steps instead of baby steps, if you know what I mean. I feel like we've been taking baby steps for so long. I want them to be bigger. Yeah, I think that's a great metaphor because I feel when we, when we compare to the AFLW, they've taken leaps in their short yeah. history, whereas the, as we know, the WNBL being the longest-running 
Women's Professional League in Australia. It does feel like we've just been taking baby steps. We've still got the floaties on. We're still treading water a little bit. I would also like to see bigger steps. But I feel like um, for all of the uh, criticisms that the league faced for whatever reason early in the season, uh, you could tell that those working behind the scenes, you know, led by Christy Collier-Hill, you could tell that Christy and her team were putting in a lot of effort to try and rectify those problems early. And you can tell that they want the best for the league as well and they also want to speed things up. So I think we still got to give a lot of credit to them. I mean, I know the three of us too, but as the as the Well, I think you only have to look at, 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 you know, some of the, the new sponsorship that's come on board. It's not easy to get sponsorship. We, we know that, and, you know, it's a, a hard market to get into. So, so the fact that, you know, we've got some new sponsors on board that, that hopefully can then elevate us each year and, and that that's something that, you know, continues on trend that, yes, there absolutely is lots going on behind the scenes and it has to continue that way. And there was just so much in this season to celebrate. Like the season in itself, like the caliber of games and the entertaining memorable moments was, you know, it was packed. I mean, we had two triple doubles the first time in 10 years. We had the comeback of LJ. We saw Jade Melbourne sign with a WNBA team. We saw Tiana Mangakahia back to her best form. There were so many things to celebrate in this season that outweigh anything else in my mind. And I hope in a sense, like especially with the increased fan engagement and how LJ's impact has now gone across so many generations in basketball, I hope there's some way that the clubs and the league will be able to keep those fans engaged in the off-season. So keep them, keep the hype going, keep the conversation and the chat about the league going one way or or another and keep us invested and, and make us excited for when the season starts again. Because, I mean, like, NBL one's great as um, to keep our appetite going, but uh, I, I'm definitely going to be a bit sad when this season's all over because it's like your favourite TV show coming to an end. Yeah. You won't have to wait for next year for the next season. Yeah. 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 Now, there is one other thing that I want to talk about, and I know that this is something that you want to talk about, Laurie. This was something that you felt that you didn't get enough opportunity to talk about during one of the telecasts. And this is about the statistics that went up about the scoring and the comparison that you did between the 2012-13 season and the 2022-23 season. So I'm going to hand it over to you to sort of start this off because I've kind of been doing a bit of looking into this as well. So I'm curious to sort of hear your perspective on it. Well, so it came, it started from just my own thoughts of, Gee, I feel like we've just had some, just what we've been talking about, some great shooting games out there. The players are just, you know, some of the contested threes that are going in, and, and we, I felt like we're are shooting. And, and often people ask me, you know, has the league improved? Has it changed? What's, you know, happening? So I was having this discussion with my son, who was home from London, and I just might add he's a, a, a data scientist, so numbers are his thing. And I was saying I'd be really curious to see sort of compare some seasons so he's like mom throw me the numbers and I'll give you so crunch a few things for you and uh, and so it was really uh, I found it really interesting and I know you can take numbers with a grain of salt and everything but a couple of things I found were that first of all the 
shooting percentages, so both the twos and the threes percentage of shots went up by about 5%. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but that's a that's quite a bit. That's a significant amount too. And this is over all the teams across that 2012 season compared to this season. Um, so that was the first thing that they'd increased by about five percent. And then the second thing is is that the virtually and this is important the number of shots taken are very similar. Because so I thought, are we playing a faster paced game? But but the actual number of shots attempted are very similar. But it's now the amount of threes that are taken compared to the amount of twos. So 10 years ago, maybe one in five shots were three-point shots. Now it's one in three. It's closer to one in three are three-point shots that are actually being taken. And if you combine those two things, it's an increase of nine, almost nine points a game from 10 years ago. So it really has shifted in... One, the shots we're taking, and two, we're, we're getting better at shooting. And so you look at that, and that's sort of backed up also by um, the fact that in that 2012-13 season, there was five games that went to 100-plus points, and that was by one team. This season, 15 games were over 100 points, and that was by seven different teams. Wow. Melbourne Boomers having six or seven of those games. So so to me, that's a great stat uh, as far as, you know, we're, we're able to score those, those big numbers. And then you talk about, you sort of dissect it and go, well, why is that? And the purists will say our defense isn't as good, you know, we're not, but I didn't have time to deep dive into that. So I'll leave that, I'll leave that aside, but there's no question our game has become more perimeter oriented. Our traditional five posts now, you know, don't just go down to the block and post up and do back to the massive moves. They're pick and pop. They can, you know, shoot the three on the trailer. They're much more versatile. But the biggest thing I think is, is that 10 years ago, Unless you had an opal or a, an import, all the athletes had to race off after training and go to work, full-time jobs. Now they can shoot. Now they can get up, you know, they can get up shots before training. They can get up shots after training. And repetition and that, that's, that's got to have played an influence in the fact that we've got more full-time athletes than we did 10 years ago. Yeah. And if that is, if anyone needed the evidence of why... Uh, female athletes need to be paid a proper salary because it is their proper job. Yeah. Um, the, and the correlation between p- paying someone a proper salary to perform their job versus yeah. the performance of said job, it's that. Like I remember going to CAPS training and it was, you know, just under 10 years ago now of Kelly Abrams racing in after after work at to Belconnen Stadium, still in her corporate gear straight from work, getting changed and hitting the court. Like that was yeah. the reality. And, you know, people still did indies and we still did weights, but the schedule that I've seen now, I mean, maybe I was just completely naive because I was a bit of a dope back then anyway. But um, the schedule that I've seen players have now with how many on-court sessions they have and that's oh. doubled by weight sessions. I was like, yeah, we weren't doing that. Well, I wasn't doing that, obviously. Well, I I remember even just when I was coaching the, you know, finished coaching with the Boomers and went straight into the NBL and was coaching with Brian Gorgian. And so I went from the WNBL where we trained twice, maybe three times a week 
to the MBL that were every day. And, and I remember saying to Gorge, what our team ran at the beginning didn't look anything like what we ran at the end because we could tweak every day. You could make little changes. The WMBL, there's no way you could do that because you didn't have the face-to-face time with your athletes uh, nearly as much. So that, that in itself plays a big part in, you know, shooting and, and offense, whatever it is. But uh, yeah, for 10 years ago, I think that's a big factor. Now, how much of a factor is it, do you guys think, the fact that the game has changed with the recognition that if you make a lower percentage of three-point shots, you still can do better than trying to rely on mid-range twos? Yeah. Uh, statistically, yeah. statistically, that's the way the numbers tend to lean. Now, I haven't done a full deep dive into the WNBL stats, but this seems to be something that, that I've, I've read on a number of occasions. So, so you would have to then go, well, because I, I thought the same thing as far as are there more shots being taken, therefore you can take more threes and miss more threes. But when you go with the fact that the same number of shots are taken 10 years ago. Uh, You know, if you go by your theory, then you would have to shoot more, you know, I don't know what the exact numbers are. My son's not here to to be able to throw them at me right now. But, you know, does that mean you'd have to shoot five more threes at a certain percentage than you do twos at the pull-up, even though you're made, you know what I'm saying? At some stage, the balance would be like that. And I don't know what that is. Yeah, and that's that's something I'm really curious to kind of do a bit of digging into. But, yeah, yeah there's a tipping point yeah. where it's like if you take this number of threes in comparison to that number of twos, you're actually going to end up on the better side of the ledger. And I'm starting to wonder because if you look at the, the game in the U.S., like the three ball is pretty much what everybody puts up. And, yes, for the purists, there's a lot of non-defense going on as well, right? But I kind of wonder how much that's starting to influence our game, particularly with the number of Australians that are doing the college experience and also in the WNBA and then bringing that experience back to Australia for the WNBL. Well, I think you look at Perth's a slight example of they shoot the most threes out of everybody. Their three-point percentage isn't, you know, at the top or anything. And I'm not sure, but they're right up there in the points per game. So you'd have to go, that's an argument there to shoot more threes, even though it's at a lower percentage. I think, though, um, that, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, it felt like for a while there, our league was either three-point shooting or drive it straight to the basket and do not you know, consider anything but a layup uh, or a floater or something. And I, and I think that's our juniors, that's what they were being taught. It's either a three or all the way, nothing in between. And yet now I feel like the there's a little bit of a comeback in the mid-range pull-up. And I, th- I, I think you're so hard to guard if you have that aspect too, especially when there's a lot of pick and rolls, to be able to come off that pick and roll and read, okay, the defense has collapsed, I can pull up here, and to have that ability, you know, or no, there's a clear lane, They've the, the switching, I can get to the basket. So it now makes your decision-making a little bit, there's another extra element in there, Boy, but I think it's important. Uh, I think to have all three aspects to your game, you're so hard to defend. I totally agree. Like the last time I played NBL1 was 2020, and that season we had 
uh, a new coach who was very like coaching was his job. Uh, he was very up to date with the current trends and, um, you know, did all these, you know, studies of teams and on all that kind of, you know, all the BA training and stuff. So he was on the pulse and the stuff that he implemented compared to our last coach was exactly what you said, Laurie, we're either getting a three or we're getting a layup. And so it took all that whole mid range game out of it. And I thought it was super interesting. It suited the team that we had at the time. We had some great scorers. But, yeah, the downside was then being it took the read and react and the IQ part of the game out of it and it made it a bit restrictive. So when we did have an opportunity for pick and roll, they were only just looking for the roll or the three off it and then the whole scoring option of the in-between was taken out of it. The other thing that I didn't really like with that style of play is that the five-man was purely there to set a screen and to be a facilitator in another way and not always a scoring option. Mm. Um, which I didn't personally like because I love a, I love a good five man. I love the back to the basket. I love how they can have the power of being a facilitator in certain spots, but being a scoring option and giving that sense of IQ to that position. But that style of play of either a three pointer or just a layup took that away from the five man, and which I didn't really like it either. But primarily, it took away that read and react part of the game, which is what makes basketball such a great game compared to a a lot of sports in my mind because there's so many spontaneous variables at any given moment of the game that read and react is such an important skill and it makes it super exciting well look at our look at the players in the in the final I mean well not in the final series Christy Wallace for you know she she's made a living out of that pull-up jump shot that elbow pull-up jump shot I mean that's that's a great shot for her yet she can shoot the three she can get herself to the basket Laws Nicholson you know curling off and being able to catch and shoot that straight away that's tough to defend if your defenders locking and trailing and going behind you yet there's a big in front catch and shoot it you know those that element of the game I like the fact that it's it's sort of coming back a little bit more because it is just a, it's another skill. It's another, another avenue for scoring. Totally. And if that's in your player's skill set, why wouldn't you want to exploit it as a scoring option as much as possible? Imagine if that part of Laura Nicholson's game was taken away. Like that's such a detriment to the Townsville Fire offense as a whole if yeah. she wasn't allowed to get, have yeah. those scoring options off the curl. Yeah. Yeah. And plus it makes the defense have to to think a little bit more because now your scouts aren't necessarily, you know, she's just a three-point shooter, lock her down, or she's a driver. Now you've got to go, okay, well, if she goes to her right, she's probably going all the way. But if she goes to her left, she's going to pull up. So now there's another layer of, of defense that you have to challenge your players with too. So, uh, you know, what's what's the negative of that? If you have to defend her, that's the negative. <laughs> yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> You know, I I think this is a really interesting topic because one of the things I don't think we see enough of is some of this deep dive into the numbers. And, you know, just the the items that you identified, Laurie, just out of that small table was really interesting because it got me thinking about, well, okay, it's interesting to see how the game's evolved over the last 10 years in terms of shots taken and the impact that it's having on the scoring. But then really, how does it start to look for the individual teams and and what does it tell us about what the teams are trying to do by looking at those numbers as well and trying to slice and dice them in more detail? And I suppose, you know, it's one of those things that I don't think 
and, and I could be wrong, and if there's anybody out there who knows of the, let me know, where we can actually look at those numbers in that sort of detail to be able to try and, and figure out any trends, particularly as you're going through a season. Well, I don't believe the WNBL has those um, numbers in detail, but I do know the WNBA does because I'll tell you this, when I was with the Opals and doing scouts for, you know, the U.S. team or, or another team that had a, a, a U.S., uh, a WNBA player, oh, I, I went down the rabbit hole because there were so many stats. So literally every shot that's taken is you know, this player turns left shoulder and scores 45% of their shots, da, da, da. And, and it's analyzed to death, but it's so interesting. Like it was, it, you know, I was making all these notes. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we can't give these to the players. They're way too deep. You know, you had to cut it right back. But they have those sorts of, of stats of where shots are coming from and how they're being scored. Besides you know, in the paint and threes, I'm not sure we have those sort of statistics. We'll just well, have to tweet Dean Andrews as we have all season. Hey, Dean, can you look <laughs> this up for us, please? <laughs> now, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure they capture the data. It's just that we don't we don't well, actually get to see it. But who? It would have to be somebody sitting at each game. You know, I mean, you look at your the scoring or the, the, you know, play by play. And it's got, you know, three point missed, foul shot missed, pull up, jump shot missed or made, I should throw a made in there. Um, and, but there's gotta be somebody physically putting in that data or going through tape afterwards and doing that. And I, I'm just not sure that we would have the resources to do that. Well, I, I could be wrong, but I think the stats team also capture where the shots taken from. Yes, in a, in a, I mean, you can, I mean, what yeah, I've seen, you can see that, you know, the dots, uh, yeah. a green is made and a red is a miss from where, so you can get some ideas from that. Sure, of course, you know, maybe yeah. most of the threes are taken from the left-hand side of the court or the, you know, the corners or whatever it is. You, you can get a sense of that for sure. Yeah, it's just that I think there's there's this whole really interesting conversation around this, particularly around, you know, the evolution of the WNBL, even by looking at the two data points that you've you've selected, which is ten years ago and, and yeah. this season, so yeah, I'm sure there's so much more information that we could glean. Um, you know, I'd just, like to. One of the things I'd like to know is, and only because at a, a world championship we got this information, but how many times does your team score in the first eight seconds of the shot clock? the middle or the end, the last eight seconds of the clock shot, how efficient are you at those areas of the shot clock? You know, I think that's interesting. Are you, you know, at the world championships, the Opals, we were the best transition scoring team. We scored most in the first eight seconds of the shot clock. And then there'd be another team that, you know, maybe a Townsville that, that is very proficient at scoring in those last eight seconds of the shot clock. But Firm data with that, not just what you you feel, but firm data. Um, and yeah, I'm with you, Paul. I'm I think it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm sure uh, you know any coaches who are going to be listening to this, going, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Let's let's try and get some more of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's it wasn't really that easy to even find the stats. So from ten years ago, 
just some very, very basic ones that I, you know, found. Um, but they were there, so that was good. Okay, so just a shout-out to any of the data nerds out there who've got information like this. We should talk because I'm sure there's an, inter- there's an interesting podcast in all of that. Well, Mark Slocum, I don't know if you know him at all. We call him Statman. He used to work when I, you know, was commentating with the ABC. He was great at feeding us stats and really random ones that were so fascinating, you know. And he's the one that told me about the 100 points, you know, scored. He, he dug that up really quickly. And he's tremendous with stats and, and things like that. So let's get him on board. Okay, that sounds good. (laughs) Okay, guys, it's all starting this weekend. It's going to be a really, I think, a really amazing grand final series for the WNBL. We got two great teams in there, fantastic players. And like I said, I think it's going to go to three, and I think it's going to be one of those series where you're not going to know until the last whistle blows. Can I just say, because I didn't really get the opportunity, but congratulations to both teams in the grand final. It's been a wonderful season to get there. And, you know, shout out to to not only the players, but the coaches who put in such hard work, the physios, the, the, the support staff that keep them on the court. They should all be recognized for their great work of getting their teams to the grand final. And, and best of luck to everybody. Absolutely. Laurie, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great having you on. It's been great talking about the final series, the WNBL season and the statistics and, you know, looking forward to the final series. Thanks so much, Laurie. No problem. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) Thanks so much. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.